Security did a great job. I know he, I know he does. Uh, he's got a calmer demeanor than me, so you probably were more relaxed, so that's, uh, that's a good thing. Um, I'm here to rile you back up again, so um, turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We'll be reading the last uh, verses of the chapter, verses 31 through 43, so we'll finish this 18th chapter. Luke chapter 18, I'll start with verse 31 here. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. Then it happened as he was coming near Jericho that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, and he cried out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who went before warned him that he should be quiet, but he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. When he came near, he asked him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him glorifying God, and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Lord, we ask again for you to now move by your Spirit and your Word, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have two separate scenes here that we've read, two separate interactions with Jesus, two different issues, but one common problem between these two scenes an inability to see. I don't think we have anyone blind in this room, but we we certainly know people, you've probably met people that are blind. And this time I've mentioned thanks living, I'm really thankful I have eyes that work, aren't you? I'm pretty sure I need a new prescription lately, uh, driving, but, but my eyes still work, I can still see the colors. An inability to see is something that's always going to be a problem. And the disciples, they can't see, they can't see where Jesus is going. They can't see where he's going. They can't see or understand what he's talking about. What, what is the Son of Man's going to be betrayed and killed and rise? What, what is all that? They, they'd been around him for quite a long time. This is getting near the end of his three-year ministry. He's getting really close to going to Jerusalem and the cross, and they still don't understand why he's really come, and at least in this respect. It's the third time he's spoken these things to him. Three times. They're not like us. You and I get it right the first time, don't we? Of course we don't. We have to hear things two or three times more. Well, the blind man, he can't see anything. Can't see anything. From a physical perspective, completely blind. 
And so we observe here a fundamental problem with mankind. We have a sight problem. We have a sight problem that only God can address. Just as we need the sun, we got the sunshine today. I think when I drove up, there wasn't a cloud in the sky. I don't think there were yesterday either. I kind of wish all days were like that. You know, I love that just these crystal clear blue skies. There's not a cloud in the sky out there. Uh, but we need the sun to see, don't we? Even when the sun, we were down there, we got to see three gorgeous sunsets right you know, over the Florida Bay. And, and uh, even when the sun sets, amazingly, you, as you know, in the sunset, it's still giving off light. It takes a while before, even after it sets, and we know it's not really setting, we know it's the, the turning of the earth and the tilt on the axis uh, that the sun finally is so behind the tilt of the earth there that, uh, that, that, that we don't have the same amount of light. But even, even then, it's, there's some measure of light because the sun gives light to the moon, the moon reflects, and we have enough light to be able to see. Just imagine if you're down in uh, Antarctica when it's those months where it's pitch black. You can't see at all. There's no light at all. And it, or if there is, it's incredibly minimal to the human eye. I mean, some of the animals can see things, but, uh, but darkness. We need the sun to see, S-U-N, but we need the S-O-N, sun, to really see, don't we? The Son of God. To see truth. To see our need. To see his deliverance in our life. Even before we know we need deliverance, we need to see to need deliverance. To see what we need, spiritually speaking. If you're taking notes, I've titled our time in God's Word this morning, Able to See. Able to See. We'll look at three things from the text. Unaware, undeterred, and unveiled. Unaware, undeterred, and unveiled. Jesus uh, takes these 12 aside. Uh, it's a good reminder for us, by the way. Uh, you know, we gather here as a, as a body, which we're encouraged in Hebrews to do, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, which is uh, the custom of some, but even more so as the, the return of Christ appears, we should be gathering more, not less, even though church attendance generally has been sliding and dropping for 15, 20 years now, more we should be gathering together. But even though we, we love these times, and by the way, you know, it was great hearing about what, 60 ladies gathered yesterday for the Christmas, uh, Christmas thing? This room didn't look like this. It was a bunch of tables and all set up and for, for them to gather and just to fellowship and hear the Word of God, which is the same thing we're doing here this morning. And that's good, but Jesus also wants to take us aside personally. Are you allowing Him to take you aside personally in your devotional life? Have, you take, have him take you aside every day, and you, he, he kind of shares the word with you by the Holy Spirit. You're reading it yourself, and he's illuminating, teaching, as which he would do with the disciples often, just taking them uh, in these uh, quiet, intimate moments. But he takes them aside, and, and he had been investing in them uh, specifically for quite some time. And it's also a good reminder to us that uh, those that are hungry for the Word of God, God encourages us to invest in them. That's what Paul did with Timothy, to invest in that young man because he had such a yearning uh, to grow. And we see people that desire to grow, we need to run alongside them and say, hey, how can we invest in you? And Jesus was doing that uh, in their lives, investing in them. Uh, but as I mentioned, he had already shared twice with them, hey, here, here's what's going to happen to your teacher, your rabbi, your mentor, your 
Savior. Yeah, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be delivered to the Gentiles. See, he would be taken originally by the, uh, by the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, which would be the Jewish council. They would be the ones that would pronounce the death sentence on Jesus, but they couldn't really carry it out, so they had to give him over to who? The Romans and Pilate. So Jesus is telling, you know, it's an it's amazing thing that Jesus came to the earth, and he, he already had been to the future. I don't know how this all works. He had already seen the future been to the future and understood everything, the cock crow, all the whole night, how it would all go. Hey, look at the description. Be delivered to the Gentiles. Be mocked and insulted. He knew that they'd pluck out his beard. He knew that they would beat him. He knew that they would spit on him. All of these things. Now, some of these things were prophesied, uh, of course, in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament. But if some of the details, only he would have known exactly how it was going to go. Uh, that he and ultimately they would scourge him. He'd be beaten uh, and scourged, then whipped with a cat of nine tails, a Roman uh, whip that would actually have little pieces of broken bone or rock or glass that would actually shred and rip his back. He knew all these things were coming, and he still came. And you and I, if we if we knew we could avoid pain, we generally do, right? But he wasn't avoiding it. He was heading straight for it. Boy, it takes the power of God to do that. But he's telling them all these things. And then he says, hey, we're going up to Jerusalem together. He says, uh, behold, we are going to Jerusalem. He didn't just say he was going, he, but their part of the deal was just to go up there with him. His part of the deal was to actually do the, do the, uh, be the one suffering, bleeding, dying. But it wouldn't end there. He said they'll scourge and kill him, but on the third day, He'll rise again. Third day. Why three? Why the third day? Well, we have some clues, but ultimately we won't know until we get to heaven. This was God's plan. Three days, and then he would rise from the dead. It'll all take place there. You're all going to go with me. You're all going to know it has happened, but the whole weight of it, what he says, is going to be on me, not on you guys. It'll be on me. And they still don't understand. What's he talking about? What in the world? Is he talking about him? Is this somebody else? Is this years from now? And actually, it's very, very close, right around the corner. Now, Jesus uh, tells us a couple things here that, again, verify his fulfillment of all things. He says everything will have to be fulfilled and accomplished. Uh, it has to be in Jerusalem. Has to be in Jerusalem. Even you go back to when, remember when uh, uh, God told Abraham to take Isaac up on Mount Moriah? Where's Mount Moriah? Well, it was a picture. Mount Moriah is Mount Zion. It's right there in Jerusalem. So he had to go to the same place where Isaac was laid down as a type of future, uh, just a picture of when Jesus would be laid down. And then Isaac being the, first, uh, uh, being the firstborn of Abraham. It was a type of the father giving his own son. And so Jesus would actually fulfill this picture that was way back when Abraham first went to the very same uh, mountain there in Jerusalem. And all the prophecies in the Old Testament re uh, related to Christ, uh, all of them related to him laying down his life. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, all these passages and many others, uh, they will be accomplished. Jesus said, it's a done deal. Whatever Jesus says will happen, will happen. 
says all these things are going to take place exactly uh, as it is written. And he enumerates the following things. If you're taking notes, he enumerates, one, uh, that he must be delivered to the Gentiles. This would be a team effort. Both Jew and Gentile would be guilty of putting Jesus on the cross. The Jewish Sanhedrin would turn him over, but the Gentiles would be the ones that would carry out the crucifixion. The Romans would carry it out. So nobody would be able to say, well, they did it. Even though people still do that today. There's an anti-Semitism that exists where they say, you guys were the ones that killed the Jewish Messiah. Well, actually, both Jew and Gentile were both guilty in this respect. Number Number two, he would be mocked, insulted, and spit upon. Jesus says, guaranteed, when I go there, I just won't be killed. They will try and humiliate me in front of all the world. You know, it's amazing uh, if you, if you've, you've seen the things on the news, how cruel humans can be. That not just to crucify someone, but to spit on them, to mock them, to laugh. I don't, I don't get it, but this is, ha- this is the depth of evil. In all of our hearts, we have that capacity to be that evil. Really, we do. I think some people say, I, I could never be like so-and-so. Yes, you could. But for God changing us, we all have a capacity for cruelty and evil that's beyond our comprehension. And when we see things take place, you know, you ha- how does someone even invent crucifixion? How does someone invent these things and actually love them and have a blo- what's called a bloodlust? We see that with uh, ISIS. They have a bloodlust. They love it. It doesn't bother them. They actually feed off of it. And there was many that were going to take great pleasure in mocking and insulting Jesus. Number three, he'd be scourged. This would be, if it was the form of Roman whipping, that he'd be scourged. Uh, the whip would be laid upon his back, tearing open his flesh. Number, uh, that's number three. Number four, that he'd be killed. Not just killed, we know uh, that uh, they'd pierce his hands and feet, as the prophecies had said, that he'd be crucified. Jesus himself uh, mentioned this. And then uh, the fifth, he says, on the third day, I'll rise again. On the third day, I'm going to rise again. Aren't you glad that Jesus outlines all the bad news? As it replies to him, but then he says, he doesn't say this, but in essence, we can now look back and see it. But don't worry, I got this. I'm going to rise from the dead. I'll take care. They, they won't be able to hold me in the grave. They won't be able to keep me there. They'll have beat me. They'll have gotten their pound of flesh for a couple of days. They'll win a little battle, but I'll win the war. That's what he's telling them. And that's something to be thankful about, isn't it? As we think about thanks living, uh, are we learning and living? You know, if, if you're having a bad day or a bad week, just remember you didn't do this and choose to go there, and Jesus has already conquered all of our bad days with one day. Amen? The disciples at this time, and, and they're following Christ, they couldn't understand what he was saying. They didn't understand what he meant by all this. They didn't understand what they didn't understand. It was just, it was all... Uh, they, they got so much of what he was teaching, but this one thing, and the scriptures tell us that it was hidden from them. For some reason, God says, I, I'm not going to let you fully see it just yet. Christian, there are things that God's not going to let you see fully just yet in your lifetime. 
but maybe next year he will. For whatever purposes, there's things that I can look back and say, wow, now I understand what God was doing with that in my life. You ever been there? There's times where he veils a little bit on purpose. This isn't keeping us from salvation. These, these, uh, these disciples had already, uh, sans Judas, had already put their faith and trust in the Lord. But God says, you're not going to fully understand this just yet. Uh, it, it's, un, it's, it's one of those things that we can't really explain where Jesus is telling them a third time now, and yet God is veiling them a little bit because I believe that this was imperative in their overall ministry going forward, when they would be able to look back and see and tell other people, hey, hey, there was times where we didn't understand everything either, but we still followed him anyway. There's times where we just don't know. They were still unaware of the primary mission of Jesus. His primary mission was not just to teach, although he'd done a lot of that. His primary mission wasn't just to do miracles. He had done a lot of that. primary mission was not just to show himself physically to mankind, though he had certainly done that. His primary mission was to die and to rise again. This was the primary mission. All of his teaching, all of instruction, all of those things led to this climatic event. It would be the centerpiece of all eternity, but they still didn't understand what was coming. The God today, though, he's not hiding the message of the cross anymore, is he? No. If anything, people are hiding from the message of the cross. Amen? God's not hiding these things. People are hiding from these things. 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. Now, God is proclaiming through us, through the Word, through the millions of Bibles around the world, through the thousands of churches around the world, through the missionaries that have gone out, through the apostles that started that work 2,000 years ago when they went out proclaiming to the whole world, this is what God did. Jesus is saying, what I'm going to do, now we look back and say, this is what he did. It's done. As he cried out, it is what? Finished. He could say, even before it happened, that he would guarantee its completion. Later, the disciples, they would fully understand the reality of the cross, wouldn't they? They would understand the necessity of the cross. They would understand the power of the cross. And they would understand the resurrection. And they would love it more and more and more as they went on in life. Because they would look back and say, remember when we didn't even get what he was saying? By the way, when you, when you actually can have compassion on other. When you can remember back when you didn't get something, even before salvation, or you can remember back when you didn't get something after salvation, it gives you a more tender heart of compassion to people who don't yet get it. Instead of looking at them like, how do they not get this? How, why are they not as smart as us? It's not smart. It's has God revealed? Has he given the sight that we all so desperately need? They could look back and, and just be more amazed at the miraculous work that God had done in their own life. And Christian, do you see the wonder of the cross? Can you look back now and, and still be just as amazed the wondrous cross that we sing about? The sacrifice and the victory of Jesus? Are you amazed by the sacrifice and victory of Jesus? Or is that a ho-hum thing to you? 
Is God showing, how about this? Is God showing you new things? Later they would see these things. Later they would understand. They would actually write epistles on it, wouldn't they? They would actually remember with full clarity what Jesus did, and they would actually write some of the greatest words. You know, the Apostle John would go on and write things, and we would say, wow, well, boy, had they come full circle. Is God still revealing new things to you, or you can't remember the last time God revealed anything new to you? I love when I read a verse and I see something I'd never seen before. Because the Holy Spirit, as long as we are in the presence of God for all eternity, He can reveal something new we had never understood or seen before. Our, our, our amount of knowledge, it can fit in a thimble or less, can it? Compared to God, you know, things we used to see dimly, God wants to illuminate in our life. I've been meditating, our family's been meditating for a while on Colossians chapter uh, 1, 9 through 10. It says that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, increasing in the knowledge of God. Do you realize God wants to increase our knowledge of him from what it was yesterday? That's why the writer of Hebrews said some of you ought to be teachers by now. Did you know it says that? Why? Because some people resist learning in the Lord and the Holy Spirit's telling the disciples later, all those things you didn't understand, I'm going to now teach you and you now need to take it to other people. They were unaware at the time what Jesus was talking about, but later they would get it. Let's take a look at what takes place uh, in this next interaction. Shortly after Jesus says all these things, the scene moves, and they were uh, coming to the city Jericho in verse 35. He was coming near Jericho, and a certain blind man sat there begging. Now, it's likely that uh, there were actually two blind men, if you're familiar with the other Gospels. Uh, as Jesus approaches uh, this city of Jericho. Uh, Luke only deals with one man here. For whatever reason, the Lord has him just focus on the one uh, in recounting this miracle. Uh, the other text, uh, if you want to write it down, is Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 34. Uh, at the time of Christ, there was two Jerichos. They were about a mile apart. Uh, you have the old city of Jericho. You might remember from your Bible stories. Remember Joshua and the children of Israel walked around the city and on the seventh day, you know, when he finally blows the trumpet, the walls of the city come down. Rahab the harlot had put the, the scarlet thread out there. And that Jericho had fallen into ruin. And then Herod the Great comes along, and he builds a second Jericho a mile away. And so you have a newer Jericho and an older Jericho, the one that's in ruins, although, albeit people still lived in the uh, ruinous area one as well. And then you have the new uh, nice Jericho that Herod the Great had built. So Jesus is exiting uh, the way that the writers, the way I believe most Bible scholars have looked at it, is that uh, uh, one in, in this passage, he's actually entering or coming near Jericho, and Luke, it says he's exiting or leaving Jericho. And the reason why scholars, and I agree with them, is he's exiting the old Jericho and entering into the new Jericho. So uh, people are always trying to find contradictions in the Bible. I found another one, right? But when you study, you realize that they're not contradictions. They are contradicted, but the Bible is not. And so he's leaving, uh, perhaps uh, going through, he had uh, come out of the uh, older Jericho, was coming in uh, to the newer city of Jericho right here. And so even though Luke only deals with the one man, there likely were two. 
Uh, but on the heels of Jesus sharing um, his destination, where he's going, and what's going to take place in Jerusalem with the disciples, and their inability to see and understand what it is that Jesus is saying, and Jesus now comes to this uh, new city of Jericho, and he encounters a man who also has a sight problem. They weren't able to see spiritually what Jesus was talking about. This man physically can't see. He's as blind as you can be to the place that uh, you know, they did not have all the, you know, some of the things that we have today uh, to help blind people. As a matter of fact, uh, handicapped people, they weren't cared for in the ancient world. It was basically tough luck. You want to beg for a living? You know, it wasn't like health and human services were out helping people. It wasn't like you were going to be getting some kind of government check and help. It wasn't like people, there was charity springing up all over to help people in this condition. You were in a really bad place if you were leprous, blind, lame, deaf. Most people say, hey, that's the way you were. And of course, many of the, the really pious religious leaders would say it was probably sin in your life. That's why you're in your condition, because you're full of sin. Of course, they didn't think they were. And so you had that to deal with, the shame of it as well. But this man has a physical sight problem. He's blind. He's unable to see. But that's not his only problem. Like the rest of the world, he needs spiritual sight as well. He needs to be given spiritual sight from Jesus. He needs to be taken from darkness into light. Just as he needs supernatural healing of his sight, he also needs a supernatural transfer from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God and in the light of God. And here, this blind man, he's unable to provide for himself, so he's begging for food. Another thing to be thankful for is that if you have a job, you don't have to be out begging. And there's some people that are in desperate conditions that get to that place in life where Shame is not even an issue. It's just survival. But he's begging for food, and he's begging for money. He's begging for assistance in life. And he hears this large crowd going by. What's this all about? It sounds unusual. You know, people that are lacking one of the senses are usually really strong in the others. You know that, right? So if, if you can't see, they're usually, their hearing is in tune. They can feel almost, and that's why, you know, you and I look at Braille at the, at the ATM, like, how in the world does this mean anything to anybody? You ever touched it? I still do. I, I, every time I go, I like, what? Still, it's just a bunch of dots to me. But he hears a large crowd, and he's in tune with the rhythm of the day and how things pass through, and this seems different. Something's a buzz. People are coming through in a large crowd. Uh, group and he senses something is different about all this. It seems unusual. He begins to ask, but then they tell him it's uh, Jesus of Nazareth. Now notice the title they tell him. They tell him Jesus of Nazareth. That's not how he refers to Jesus. He's never seen Jesus, uh, at least physically. Uh, he appears to have heard of Jesus and the things Jesus has done. He's believed the message. Whatever he's heard of Jesus, it appears that he's already believed that it's true. There's a lot of people that have heard the message of Jesus in the United States, people you work with every day, and they still don't believe a word of it. I don't believe that stuff. Church is your crutch. Enjoy it. I'm watching the NFL this morning. Right? We have an NFL, too, called Newfound Life. Amen? 
And I, ours will last for eternity. Their product's getting boring, by the way. Anyway, that's another topic. But, uh, but ours is eternal. What a beautiful passage is found in John 20, 29. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. That's you and I. I've never seen Jesus physically. I've never seen his nail-pierced hand physically. I'm going to see it one day. And if you're saved, you will too. But I've already believed every single word about Jesus. How about you? I know it's all true. I know the things he's done that I've never seen are more true than things I have seen. When you're desperate for deliverance like this man, when, when you believe you need deliverance like this man, you become a lot more open to the truth of God. You know, when people get desperate, they become a lot more open to the truth. You know, as times get more and more crazy in this world, you're going to have people, I promise you this, you're going to have people say, tell me more about your church. Tell me more about your Bible. I have a relative that, uh, that we've been praying for for years that recently uh, said, uh, I have a question about the Bible. You'll have people that are going to start to question the things in their life. They're going to say, hey, that whole stuff about Jesus, some of it seems plausible now. Because the Bible has the only answers for everything on earth. He starts to become desperate. And he starts to cry out with a loud voice. He doesn't say, Jesus of Nazareth. What does he say? Look in your Bibles. He doesn't say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, Jesus, son of David. Yeshua ben David in Hebrew. This term, son of David, it refers to messianic prophecies in the Tanakh or the Old Testament. This state that Messiah would come and he would assume the throne of who? David. The phrase or title, Son of David, it's not found in the Old Testament. You won't find it anywhere. If you read uh, Genesis through Malachi, you're not going to find the term Son of David. But it was well understood by the time Jesus uh, arrives on the scene 2,000 years ago. It's used more than 15 times in the New Testament. And by the time Jesus is, is walking on the earth here, uh, it's a common reference to the coming of Messiah for people to say, we're waiting for the Son of David. The Jewish community understood this terminology. So this man doesn't say Jesus of Nazareth. He says, son of David. The people, they were expecting a ruler. They were expecting a deliverer that would come, and he would come from the loins of David, which Luke and Matthew make clear anyway. But he would be anointed by the king. He would be anointed as king by God himself. Jesus mentions in Mark 12, 35, uh, that the scribes taught this. Jesus said, the scribes said, Christ is the son of David. Jesus was using their own lingo on them. That the scribes were, around, were going around saying, Christ is the son of David. So we, knew that, we know that it was understood who the Messiah was based on the prophecies and based on the terminology they were using that Jesus said, you're right. The Christ is the son of David. But Jesus continued that same discourse uh, in Mark chapter 12 and verses 36 and 37. Uh, he was teaching openly in the temple when he was having this discussion. And he quoted then from Psalm 110 verse 1, and he said this, that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand 
And he went on to say, therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How can he be his son? Jesus is talking about the conundrum of if, if, the, if the Messiah will be the son of David, how is it that David calls the son of David his Lord? Are you really confused now? Maybe this will clear it up for you. Understand the point Jesus was making. Jesus not only came from David, but David came from Jesus. Here's what it says in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. All the way at the end of the Bible, the final revelation of Jesus, Revelation 22, 16, Jesus says this, I am the root and offspring of David. What does that mean? Well, he's the root, means that David comes out of him, but he's the offspring of David. He was David's creator, then he stepped into creation to be born out of the line of David. So he's not just equal to David. He's above David, son of David. The blind man fully accepts that Jesus is from the royal line of David and the rightful heir to David's throne. See, the religious leaders rejected that. They said Jesus is not the son of David. But this man believed that he was. There may not be a sitting Jewish king at this time on the throne, but this desperate man firmly believes that one with authority greater than David's, abilities greater than David's, is able to help him. And that's why no matter how they, hey, be quiet, be quiet, dude. He's not caring about embarrassment. He keeps crying out, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. He's undeterred. No one's going to silence him. By the way, when you need to get to Jesus for salvation, what, well, like I did in 1995, my wife did on the same day, you don't care what anyone thinks. You'll walk that aisle, and you couldn't care less if your boss is sitting there, if you're a next-door neighbor, your best friend in this world, because you know eternal life is way bigger than a couple of people that, I wonder what they think about me at this time. You won't care about that. Eternity's a lot bigger deal. What is it that he's asking for? What is this man asking for? Well, the same thing that David asked for after he had sinned and been, had been humbled by his sin. Mercy. And what does Jesus do? He cries out for mercy. Son of David, have mercy on me. Cries out all the more in verse 39. Have mercy. Look at verse 40. I love this. Love it. Look at verse 40. So Jesus stood still. Wow. Can you imagine you're crying out? There's a mob scene. There's tons of people trying to get near Jesus. There's everyone telling this guy to be quiet. He's yelling, but there's lots of other noise too, but he's louder than everybody else's noise, and Jesus stops and stands still. Why does Jesus stop? He hears a cry for mercy. You know what stops the heart of God and the ear of God? Not when we make excuses. Not when we seek justification by our works. When we cry out for mercy, God listens. He can hear everything, but that's when he really tunes in. You as parents, you tune into your kids when they appropriate the right attitude, right? And now I'm listening to you. Jesus stops completely still. 
Why is mercy so important? It's our only hope, isn't it? We can't ask for fairness. We can't ask for justice. We can't ask for our rights. We don't have any rights. We don't deserve eyesight. We don't deserve forgiveness. We don't deserve heaven. We don't deserve salvation. Because God's standard is perfection, and no one meets that standard. We have not earned anything based on merit. If you contrast a few weeks back when we looked at the rich young ruler, what did he come to Jesus asking for? Was it mercy? No. He said, I've done a lot of good things, and my checkbook is ready. What, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? That's not the approach. I've done a lot of good deeds. I've kept all the commandments. The rest of you guys better work on it, but I've kept them all, right? That's not the approach that Jesus listens to. He cited his goodness. This blind man is just citing mercy. I got nothing to offer. He's not complaining about his condition. I mean, he doesn't deserve to be blind any more than anyone else, and I don't deserve to see any more than anyone else, and nor do you. He's just asking Christ to simply have mercy on him. This is a good reminder for all of us, isn't it? In life, don't complain. Just ask for mercy. Just ask for mercy. You know, all the other things that we, that we ask for, we just ask for mercy. And he gets it, doesn't he? Jesus says, what is it that you want? I want to receive my sight. And Jesus says, receive your sight. Your faith has made you. What faith? The faith to believe that he was Jesus, the son of David. The faith to cry out. The faith to not care what people thought. All of these things are steps of faith. And he heals him completely. Doctors can't do this. Aren't you glad that Jesus isn't limited by human ability? I would love to just witness one of Jesus' miracles, wouldn't you? All right, you can see. Eye doctors around the world can't pull this off. You can have all the money of Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, all combined, and you still can't buy sight in one eye. Can you? And Jesus, not a big deal to him. I created the earth, I can give you your eyesight. I spoke the universe into existence. Uh, I have stars that dwarf our star. You can put a million of our earths into the sun, but you can put a lot of our suns into things like Canis Majoris, which dwarfs our sun. Not a big deal for him. But it's mercy that Jesus responds. The, the cry for mercy. Mercy is the foundation of our salvation. It's the loving kindness and favor of God when we don't deserve it, isn't it? That's what mercy is. William Temple, he was an Archbishop of Canterbury, born in the late 1800s, uh, all the way through the uh, early 1900s. He said the only thing, listen to this, he said the only thing of our very own that we contribute to our salvation is the sin which makes it necessary. The only thing of our very own that we contribute to our salvation is the sin which makes it necessary. Yes, we had something to do with our salvation. We contributed a lot of sin. That's true. We bring nothing to the table. That's why David wrote in Psalm 51.7, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Even when he says hyssop, you know, when the, uh, the, in the, ho on the Holy of Holies, you had the uh, Ark of the Covenant there, and when the high priest would come in and with a bowl of the blood, he would actually dip the hyssop branch and sprinkle it, what? On the mercy seat. 
Why? Because the only approach to God is an asking, a pleading for mercy, and Jesus gives it. Let's look at this final thing as we come to a close. Unveiled, he receives his sight. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you whole. And immediately he receives his sight and follows him, glorifying God. As soon as this man's sight is given, the first thing he sees is Jesus. Isn't that great? First thing he sees is the Lord. The veil of blindness is taken away. He can now not only hear the voice of Jesus, he sees him face to face. Boy, I'm looking forward to that day. I can hear the voice of Jesus in the Word of God. I can hear his voice in prayer. But someday, folks, soon we'll be going home. We just sang that. Beautiful. You will see Jesus face to face. It'll blow our minds. We'll see him face to face. Christian, we're always going to see more of the Lord once we've asked for mercy and believed what he says. A little lesson for all of us. We're always going to see more of the Lord once we first ask for mercy and believe what he says. It starts with salvation, but it continues ever after, doesn't it? You know, Fanny Crosby, you know, she was blind from the time she was, uh, they put a pulsetice on her eyes when she was uh, a small child, and she was blind her whole, you know, virtually her entire life. And uh, it says, she says of her own testimony, the weeks sped up until revival meetings were being held in the 30th Street Methodist Church. Some of us went down every evening. On two occasions I sought peace but did not find the joy I craved until one evening, this is her own testimony when she was born again, until one evening it seemed to me that light must have come then or never. And so I rose and went forward alone. After prayer, the congregation began to sing that grand old hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die. And when they reached the third line, the fourth stanza, Here, Lord, I give myself away. She said, My very soul was flooded with celestial light. I sprang to my feet shouting, Hallelujah, and then for the first time, I realized I had been trying to hold the world in one hand and the Lord in another. Do you realize how many people are still trying to hold on the world with one hand and Jesus with the other? But as soon as she let go of the world and only grabbed Jesus, she didn't get physical sight, but she got celestial light flooded her soul, and she had peace ever after. And it wasn't until she turned 44 sometime later that she wrote her first hymn, and then she wrote on, went on to write more hymns than anyone had ever written. Meaning what? While Satan has many people on the sidelines like this beggar, once God gets a hold of your life, he'll pull you off the sidelines and do things in you that you would never think possible. A woman who couldn't see would see more Scripture and more because God has an unlimited reservoir that he can give to us, not just to bring us to salvation, but to carry us after salvation. You can't help but see the contrast again here, between this blind beggar and back to the rich young ruler, same chapter. And Luke has it in here by the Holy Spirit for a reason, that they're both in the same chapter. Remember the wealthy young ruler. What a difference. The beggar, he's given something that money can't buy. His eyesight and salvation. You can't buy eyesight if you're blind, and you can't buy salvation from God. The rich young ruler, he walked away with his money intact, no spiritual healing, no salvation, no eternal hope of heaven. 
it's true, the rich man was made poor, and the poor man was made rich. We also see a Christmas connection story here I just want to draw your attention to real quickly here in the 18th chapter. See, Luke records uh, back in Luke chapter 1, Jesus' earthly mother, you all know Mary, um, after she was told that she would give birth to a son conceived by the Holy Spirit, uh, she offered a praise to God where she actually prophesied. Luke chapter 1, verse 53, she said this, He hath filled the hungry with good things and has sent the rich away empty-handed. That's exactly what we see in the 18th chapter. He sent the rich and ruler away empty-handed, no salvation. But the man who was poor, he gave good things to, his sight and heaven. Mary had prophesied, and Jesus was fulfilling all of these things. What is what's the response of this eyesight now given? Well, first, he could see, but he could see not only with his physical eyes, but now he could see spiritually. And Christian, our spiritual eyesight should continue to grow. The second thing we see in verse 43, he followed Jesus. Are we still following Jesus? Are we still, would people look at our lives and say, you are followers of Jesus? He followed Jesus. Jesus is going to Jerusalem, by the way. He's going there to die, and this man goes and follows him immediately. And the third, he glorified God. He glorified God with his life and with his lips. Are we doing the same? So much so that everyone else began to glorify God. By the way, our walk will be contagious in a good way if the Holy Spirit is flowing in our life. Jesus had come to bring light. In Isaiah chapter 42, verses 6 and 7, it says prophetically of Jesus that he was as a light to the Gentiles to open blind eyes, physically and spiritually. In the verse 16, it says, I will bring the blind by the way they did not know. I will lead them in paths not known. I will make darkness light before them. Jesus is actually unveiling Isaiah 42 in the, right in the presence of the apostles, this man. But to see is, but to see is still a choice. It's, we have to desire mercy, and we have to desire Jesus as our Lord and our King. Or we can be like the rich young ruler in the scribes, which Isaiah 42 says of this. It says on Isaiah 42, 18 through 20, it says, Seeing many things, but you do not observe, opening the ears, but does not hear. And Jesus is saying that he would give vision, he would give spiritual healing to anyone that would be willing, but we have to be willing. That's what he would weep over Jerusalem. I long to gather you, but you're not willing. Christian, aren't you glad, if you're saved here, that you were sitting in darkness at one time too? I remember well when I was sitting in darkness. I remember the darkness of life before Christ. I don't, I don't remember all of it, thankfully. God removes a lot of the memories, but enough to remember that I certainly was on the other side. And then, when you heard the name of Jesus, you cried out for mercy, and he stopped and stood still, didn't he? And he looked at us and said the same thing. He said, what do you want? I don't know what you asked. I said, I want to be saved, and I want eternal life. And he didn't say, come back in a week. I'm not really interested in guys like you. No. He said, yes, I'm willing. Receive salvation. Amen? 
It's come to a close. Father, we thank you this morning that when your name is proclaimed and we hear your name, you're willing to respond to any cry of mercy. And we thank you, Lord, that you're, you've made us able to see and you desire, Lord, that we would all see with spiritual eyes that have been cleansed and forgiven of sin. Lord, it's not fairness or justice that we need, but we simply need your mercy and your grace. We thank you for coming and fulfilling all things that were written that we would be saved, that we would have the opportunity to ask for your mercy and to receive it based on the finished work of the cross and your resurrection. We can't say thank you enough. It's in your name we pray. Amen.